And, and seven really chapters of the book of Romans have been leading up to this incredible moment that we're stepping into, that we stepped into last week and we continue this week. Uh, we talked about it last week. It's kind of the uh, crescendo moment of Romans. It's the don't stop believing uh, moment. It's the we are the champions moment uh, in the book of Romans. And it has been uh, just an incredible journey. As we've walked through the book of Romans, our understanding uh, of each section as we've traveled through from chapters 1 through 7 and into 8 uh, have really been fueled by three major things. Uh, number one, an understanding of the context in which it is written in the sense of uh, why, why Paul was writing in the first place. And that's, that's considered the occasion for writing. Why did Paul write the book of Romans in the first place? And we know that the main reason that, that uh, sparked the, the letter of the Romans uh, or to the Romans from Paul is that he desired to make uh, Rome a, a base of operations for his third missionary journey, but he hadn't planted the church in Rome. The, the church in Rome had probably been planted either by uh, Peter or somebody who was closely connected to Peter. And Paul desired to make a connection uh, with the, the church in Rome so that he could step out of the city of Rome, utilizing that church as his base of operations for his third missionary journey. So that's one of the things that has been really helpful to us as we've traveled through the book of Romans so far in terms of our ability to understand why Paul is writing the things that he's writing, why he's saying the things that he's saying. Number two, the second thing that's been really helpful for us as we have traveled through the book of Romans to understand what is in there is who the audience is. In Rome, in the church in Rome, Paul is writing to Christians. There are two different kinds of Christians, two types of Christians, two types of people uh, primarily in the church of Rome. And one type were the people who were uh, either Jewish by uh, birth and religion or had converted to Judaism and then later became Christians after hearing the gospel preached. The second type would have been Gentile Christians, people who did not have a Jewish uh, heritage, people who did not have a Jewish background, um, but had heard the gospel and rejected all of the pantheon of gods in Rome uh, and, and embraced the one true God and embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the two types of people that Paul is writing to. And so as we've been traveling through uh, we've been able to understand quite a bit uh, of why there is, there is such a Jewish and a Greek or Gentile theme throughout the book of Romans. We understand that as we read through it, knowing who it is being written to. And then the third thing that's so important for us to understand, and this is really where we're going to land this week, uh, the third thing is really what is Paul hoping to accomplish as a whole through writing the book of Romans. Certainly he wants to make a connection to the church in Rome, but you can see through the style of his letter that he's doing something even bigger than that. Uh, and the book of Romans really serves us now today, 2,000 years later, so well because the book of Romans was really Paul's uh, doctoral thesis on what the gospel is. Uh, and he really states kind of his purpose and, and what he's doing in Romans 1 chapter 16, or chapter 1 verse 16, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for those unto salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. And for us to understand what we're going to be getting into throughout chapter 8 of Romans, we have to understand that Paul is trying to help us see the big picture and the grand story of the gospel 
through his book. This is why it's the longest book that he wrote. This is why it is the most complete version of the gospel. Although Paul weaves the gospel in and through everything he writes, the book of Romans is unique in that way. Now, as we, the teaching team, uh, Renault and then Brady White and myself, have we been traveling through uh, the book of Romans together, what we have been studying um, has, has come from several different places, but one of the theologians that we've leaned very heavily on uh, is a New Testament scholar. Uh, his name is N.T. Wright. Uh, he has forgotten more about the book of Romans than I will ever know. Uh, so if you really want to hear good stuff on Romans, check out N.T. Wright, but it's very thick, just so you know, it's, it's thick stuff. Uh, but he says this about Romans and about the gospel, um, and I want us to kind of start off with this quote from N.T. Wright as an understanding for us to step into the rest of chapter 8 that we're going to be covering tonight. N.T. Wright says that the gospel, specifically uh, what Romans is talking about, but the gospel isn't just a message about how you can get saved. He's saying it's not just an eternal get-out-of-jail-free monopoly card. This is more than that. It isn't simply good advice about how to reorder your life. Like This isn't just like you know, something you might find, find in, the, in the self-help section at the Barnes & Noble. It's more than that. It's good news about something that the one true God has done in and through Jesus of Nazareth, who God has declared to be Israel's Messiah. What N.T. Wright is trying to articulate in that, and does very well, is that what the gospel is, is bigger than just a way to become saved. Although salvation does happen as a result of understanding and believing the gospel. What the gospel is, is bigger than a way to reorder our lives. Although, for those of you who know what it's like to not live for Jesus, and then to know what it's like to live for Jesus, we know that that process begins to reorder our lives a bit, does it not? We tend to make a mess of our life on our own, but when we follow God's ways, it gets much, much better. But the gospel is bigger than that. What the gospel is, is something that God, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who formed uh, the, the cosmos by the word of his mouth, the God of the universe has done something beautiful and great through the person of Jesus, who is Israel's Messiah, and our savior. And what we get to look in on with the gospel, it, it's like looking at a diamond, you know, like a girl's best friend. You look at that. It's not really a girl's best friend. Dogs are girl's best friend. But anyway, uh, at least that's what I told my fiance, soon to be wife. No, 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 a dog. I'll get you a dog sometime. Just say yes, say yes. Uh, I'm just kidding. But anyway, what it is like, this diamond, it, it, this gospel, what it is like is this beautiful shimmering jewel that has tons of different facets. And as you look into it, you see beauty in every different facet. And that's what the gospel is like. It's this incredible, beautiful thing. And what Paul is doing throughout the book of Romans is he's looking at multiple different facets of the gospel and helping us understand the full picture of the beauty of the gospel in that process. Now, we are in Romans chapter 8. We've already traveled through verses 1 through 4. We did that last week. If you weren't with us last week, really, really encourage you to go check out the podcast on that, because man, it was some fun stuff. But I'll recap a little bit for you as we step into uh, verse five together tonight. So, so Romans chapter eight really is this crescendo. Paul has led up to it. In verse one, Paul drops this amazing truth in our laps. And he says that there is, because of what Jesus has done, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are 
in Christ Jesus. Man, that's a big deal. For those of us who know that we've done some stuff in life that deserves guilt, that deserves shame, because we have rebelled against the creator, because we have done things that hurt the heart of God, we know that we ought to have received condemnation for what we have done. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. However, in Christ, while we have faith in Jesus, because of that faith that we have in Jesus and because what Jesus has accomplished, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What an amazing truth that that is. And Paul kind of says that, drops the mic, you know, kind of walks away, is like, I'm done. But then he comes back in verse two and verse three of Romans eight to try to help us understand how it is even possible that you and I would have no condemnation if we are in Christ. And what Paul explains in verses two and three is that what God does in Christ is that he condemns not us, but sin itself in the cross of Jesus. And though we had committed sin, we had committed treason against a righteous and holy God, we had rebelled against God, there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ because Jesus took upon our guilt, took upon our shame on the cross so that we would not be condemned, but that sin itself would be condemned instead, which is good news, amen? Yes, it is. And then verse four, Paul begins to unpack this, this result of what God was doing in the gospel in giving us no condemnation, in condemning sin on the cross. Why God did that was so that we, in verse four, we learn that we might walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And that's where we jump into today, into verse five, on the dovetail of that thought that Paul gives us. So grab your Bibles. We're gonna jump into Romans chapter eight, starting in verse five, and Paul is going to unpack for us how this is all going to flesh itself out and how our position in Christ is going to affect the way that we live and how that all plays out in our actual lives. So grab your Bibles, Romans chapter eight, verse five, and we're going to be on page 1045 of the Mosaic Bibles. I'm going to go ahead and read the, the uh, text that we're going to be in, 5 through 11, and then we'll jump back through and go verse by verse together. Verse 5, Paul says, For those who uh, live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
This is some amazing stuff that Paul is unpacking for us. And I want us to jump back to verse five. And as we jump into verse five, I want us to see this passage in two main sections. We're gonna look at verse five through eight in one section and verses nine through 11 in another section because Paul begins to make a transition. In verses five through eight, Paul is going to juxtapose these two different types of life. The life that is in the spirit and the life that is in the flesh. Paul is going to take a look at those two ideas and compare and contrast them. And he's going to help us understand what life in the spirit looks like versus what life in the flesh looks like. In verses 9 through 11, Paul is going to make a transition and he's going to key in on you and I who believe in Jesus for salvation. If you're here today and you have put your hope and put your trust and put your faith in Jesus for salvation, you believe who he says he is, you are saved. And Paul is going to be talking to you today. If you're here today and you're like, I'm still not sure about Jesus. I'm not sure about all of this stuff. I want you to listen in and hear the opportunity that that you have were you to put your faith in Jesus. We're glad that you're here. Uh, This is not a place where you have to have some sort of uh, spiritual level of understanding and maturity in order to qualify to be here. That's why we put coffee and donuts out because anyone can have them, okay? So we're glad that you're here. But what Paul is gonna do is key in on those who believe in Jesus for salvation. And we're gonna talk about that in verses nine through 11 in particular, okay? So verse five, Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. So that's on the one hand. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So this is the first compare and contrast that Paul is doing. Now, in order to understand exactly what Paul means by this, we have to understand two words, really three, but two words that are a little difficult to to wrap our minds around Uh, if we just read them at face value. The first thing, when he talks about the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And I think that's fairly obvious in the text. That's why they give it the capital S. Um, But the Spirit um, is, is one of these words. The other two words that we have to understand is the word flesh. Now, the word flesh in our cultural context usually just means skin and, and, and kind of meat and muscle, right? Uh, in fact, I was, uh, was house-sitting for some friends on Memorial Day of last year, and I was trying to get my dog into their boat. We were going to take their boat out on the lake. That was like our payment for house-sitting, you know, some lake time, right? And uh, we were trying to hand the dog over. I was trying to hand it over to my wife and get into the boat. And uh, as I did, I slipped on the boat ramp, Uh, Our dog kind of freaked out. I slipped and I lunged forward to get the dog into the boat because I'm a good, good father. It's who I am, okay? And uh, it's kind of heresy. Um, I'm not that good, okay? So, um, but I love my doggy. And so I get her into the boat and as I do, I slip and I fall onto the, the, where the clip uh, goes into the bimini, the cleat goes into the sunshade of the boat and my arm just slices wide open in the process. And I have literal flesh, that is just hanging there in the process. Now, some of you guys are like, okay, there's a bathroom back there. You can use it if you need to, okay? But, but when we think of flesh, a lot of times that's what we think of, our skin, our bones, our meat, uh, the, the blood vessels, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the connotation that comes into our mind when we think about flesh. That is not what Paul is talking about. Paul's not talking about our physical body at all. This Greek word, when he uses the word flesh, this Greek word is the word sarx, which is talking about our nature, our human nature, and in particular, our sinful nature that is in rebellion toward God. 
So when Paul talks about setting our minds on the flesh, he's talking about setting our minds on our rebellion against God. So that's what he's saying. Now the word mind is also a really important word for us to understand in this scripture. The interesting thing about this word is that this particular Greek word that is translated into the English word mind, this word is only used in Romans chapter 8. There's other Greek words that are used to talk about our mind and our thoughts and all of those things throughout the New Testament. But only in Romans chapter 8 does this word uh, for mind get used. It's the word phronema. And what it means is our inner perspective, our deep thoughts, our, our, the thoughts that are most core to who we are and to our belief system as it determines our outward behavior. So what Paul is beginning to unpack for us is when we set our mind, our deep inmost thoughts on the flesh, the sinful nature, the rebellion that we have toward God, what it affects is our outward behavior. And when we set our minds on the flesh, we live according to the flesh. That's that's what Paul is trying to help us understand. But when we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, when our deep inmost thoughts, we believe what Jesus says, we believe in who he is, we believe in what the scripture teaches about Jesus, that belief will move us to living in a different way. And that's what Paul is unpacking is that if our deep inmost thoughts are on our sinful nature and not on Christ, then we're gonna live sinfully. If our deep inmost thoughts are on Christ and in the spirit, we're gonna live righteously. So Paul is kind of giving us a couple of if-then statements that relate to our position, whether we're in Christ or in the flesh or in Adam, as we've talked about before, our position or our practice, the way that we live. He's talking about our belief and our behavior. See, I made them PP and BB. It's just for good for everybody, okay? So position determines our practice. Belief determines our behavior. Let me read this a little bit differently. This would be like the Joel not-so-standard version, the J-N-S-S-V, okay? If those who live according to the flesh are in the position of sin, then those who set their minds according to the flesh will practice sin. If, however, those who live according to the Spirit are those who are in the position of righteousness, then those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit will practice righteousness. So what Paul is doing is he's trying to help us see what it looks like in our lives, how it plays out in our lives based on whether or not we are positioned in Christ or whether or not we are positioned in Adam or in the flesh. Verse six, he says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now, if you've been with Mosaic for a while, and I mean a long while, I showed up in 2007, was my first ever Sunday. I think Rachel was there before me. If a couple of you guys have been around a long time, I know you've been around a long time, a couple of you guys have been around a while. We are actually in the process of preaching all the way from Genesis through Revelation. The series is called The Journey. And we started that series, I think circa 2006 is when Renault started in the book of Genesis. 
If you want some really, really, really fun uh, uh, opportunity to listen to God's word being preached, go podcast some of the old stuff. Renault is just a young pup. It's great. All his children are really small and very bad, and so the stories are awesome, okay? So, uh, so throughout, throughout the uh, Old Testament, as we've kind of walked through together as a church, one recurring theme just kept coming up over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And that theme was that if we do things God's way, it leads us to life and freedom. Some of you guys remember this? If we do things our own way, it leads us to death and destruction. And that was the thematic reality we kept coming up against in the Old Testament over and over and over again. In almost every story, that truth came to the surface. And that's exactly what Paul is explaining to us in verse 6. Now in verse 7, Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, on our own sinful nature, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot When we talk about this idea of being hostile to God, a lot of the time we think that, you know, our our interactions with God are are fairly uh, innocent. Like the, the life that we live is a fairly innocent life. A lot of times human beings like to think of themselves as basically good people, right? We like to think of humanity as having a basic goodness. And what Paul unpacks for us the idea of what sin actually is, and we learned this in uh, verses two and three last week, that this idea of sin, we can think of it just kind of like, you know, missing the mark, like I didn't quite make it. And so we think maybe Jesus handed us this bow and arrow, and we kind of pull the bow and arrow back, and we aim at the target. We let the arrow fly, and it doesn't quite hit the bullseye, but it hits, it hits the target or close to the target and we feel like, meh, well, we at least tried God. And what we don't realize is that because of sin, our sinful nature, what it does in us is it doesn't just miss the mark in that way. It is as if, and we talked about this last week, it is as if Jesus gives us the bow and arrow, we take aim and instead of shooting at the target that Jesus designed us to shoot at, we turn and we let the arrow fly right in the heart of Jesus. That is what sin is. And what Paul is saying is those who set their mind on the flesh, those who are, 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 are setting our minds on our sinful, rebellious nature, we are against God. We are hostile to God. There might be people in this world that are good people if we're comparing ourselves to one another. But when we compare ourselves to the righteousness of God, we recognize that Romans 3.23 is true, that we have all sinned and fallen not just a little bit short, but woefully short of the glory of God. And we have missed the mark, not just in a oops, I missed, but I shot it right at the heart of my creator. And when it says that, that we do not submit to God's law, and indeed we cannot, that the person whose mind is set on the flesh cannot submit to God, it is because we are in rebellion. We are in hostility. And people who are rebellious do not submit. That is a by definition reality. And this uh, brings us back to to Romans chapter 7 when we learned about this uh, being in Adam versus being in Christ. And that when we are in Adam, he is the first person who ever rebelled against the command of God, right? And here we are today, still, as a human race, 
hostile to God and in rebellion to God. And there's only one thing that can change that in us. And that is the Holy Spirit drawing us to know Jesus. Verse eight, it says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I mean, we know that when a creation is in rebellion against its creator, that is not pleasing to the creator, right? That makes total sense. If you're like not sure how to wrap your mind around it, let me paint a picture for you. You're a mother. You've got your children with you in Target. They are pitching a fit. People are watching. You have told them, no, they cannot have that piece of candy. Now they're going eight bananas over it, okay? Your blood begins to boil. You're thinking to yourself, if I hit them now, I might go to jail. Maybe I'll wait till later. In fact, better yet, I brought them into this world. Perhaps I can take them out of it right? And of course, we don't quite feel that way. But the reality is in that moment, we certainly don't feel like, you know what this reminds me of? It's a lot like when the doctor first initially handed me this baby in the hospital. The love that I felt, it's a lot like that. Like this moment in Target and that moment in the hospital, same, same. No, all right? You're thinking, why did I ever do what I did to bring this baby into the world? Like, oh my gosh, now it's a, a, almost a full-grown, I don't know, a monster, right? And they're just screaming and crying and your blood's boiling. You don't know what to do. You're on YouTube now, right? Hashtag parent fail, you know, and it's just like not fun. And what Paul is trying to help us to see is that when we are in rebellion against God, when we are hostile to our creator, it does not please God. And that's fairly common sense, what Paul uh, says there in that, in that verse eight. Now, what Paul does in verse nine is he begins to make this incredible transition. And what Paul has been doing in five through eight is he's been saying, here's what life in the flesh looks like. Here's what life in the spirit looks like. And going back and forth between those two realities. But in verse nine, he turns the attention to you and me. For those of us who know Jesus as our savior, Paul begins to bring his attention to us and help us to understand what it looks like to live with Christ. Verse nine, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I'm gonna stop here for just a minute and make a little bit of a a theological bunny trail. Are you guys ready for it? Theological bunny trail. We're not in the message anymore. This is, this is an aside, okay? There are some people within Christianity that believe that you can become a Christian but not have the Holy Spirit and that the way that you have to get the Holy Spirit is you have to have somebody who has the Holy Spirit pray over you or anoint you or teach you how to get the Holy Spirit. Now, those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We love them. They have the same gospel that we do. This is not like, you know, they're Buddhist and we're Christian, okay? This is like, when we've talked about, you know, the whole uh, theological absolutes and then studied convictions and preferences, right? We've talked about that before. Pastor Phil brought that to us a few months back. If you haven't listened to that one, it's a really good one to listen to. This one falls under the, the matters of studied conviction that we believe as a church here at Mosaic. We believe that when you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit. There is no part two. There is no like, I've kind of got the Holy Spirit, but I need, I need more of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can decide whether or not we're communing with the Spirit or fellowshipping with the Spirit or walking in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh, for sure. 
But what Paul says here, the key in on this, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, this is the Holy Spirit, does not belong to him. There is no such animal that God knows about who believes in Jesus and is saved and has salvation, but does not have the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a couple of uh, places in the book of Acts that kind of look a little bit strange around this, and we've preached through that before, so we would encourage you to go listen to those. But that was a 502 bonus, just so you guys know. Hashtag 502 bonus. No one else got that one, but I thought that'd be fun for you guys to hear. Okay. Back into the message. What Paul begins to unpack for us is that if we have the Holy Spirit, if we know Jesus, if we are Christians, then we're not in the flesh, but we are in the Spirit. That means we're not in Adam, but we are in Christ. And not only are we in the Spirit or are we in Christ, but the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us. This is amazing. Now think about this. If you were in the, in the church in Rome and you had a Jewish upbringing, if you had a, a Jewish context, a Jewish paradigm that you were coming from, you would be thinking back throughout the Old Testament and thinking about where the Spirit of God, where the presence of God had been dwelling throughout all of uh, human history especially in terms of the connection that God had with his chosen people, the nation of Israel. Throughout the nation's uh, past, you would see God wanting to interact with a sinful people, but having to create an environment where he could interact with them and his holiness wouldn't obliterate them along with their sin in the process. So you see things like God uh, allowing the Ark of the Covenant to be constructed and his presence would go in the Ark of the Covenant. And there were very, very particular uh, things that had to be done in order to construct this ark. It wasn't just like, I don't know, Bill, just uh, grab a two by four out in the back, but just throw it together. No, like it was not like that. It was very, very particular. And so the Ark of the Covenant was the place that housed the presence of God. And as you travel through, you see interactions uh, between the Ark of the Covenant and uh, one of my favorites is uh, the idol Dagon. This is great, okay? So the Ark of the Covenant is in the same room as this idol named Dagon. This is also 502 bonus. Sometimes we call this message creep, okay? So as time goes on, the message gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's fun. Okay, so Dagon is in the same room as the Ark of the Covenant, and the guy who's got the Ark of the Covenant, he's not even Jewish. He's not even uh, a part of the nation of God. He's got this other idol, and he just thinks he's got like some really cool artifact, right? So he's got Dagon in the, in the room with him, and he comes, comes and sees Dagon bowed down before the Ark of the Covenant covenant. He's like, well, this is, this is weird. So he stands Dagon back up. He goes out and he comes back in. Dagon's on the floor again. This time his head and his hands are cut off, right? Whoa. Okay. So God's presence is a really big deal. There's another story that as the nation of Israel is transporting the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Ark begins to kind of, uh, you know, it's on a, on a, um, a wheelbarrow, kind of a wheelbarrow, a, uh, like a trailer. What's the word? Anybody? Wagon. There it is. We'll go with wagon. And it's on this wagon. It starts to fall over. And a man stops and puts his hand on the Ark of the Covenant. And what happens to the man? He instantly dies. Why? Not because God is judgmental or vindictive or hateful or any of those things. But because God's presence obliterates sin. It isn't like, and you may have heard this taught before, like, 
well, God's presence just can't be in the presence of sin. That's not true. It isn't as if like, uh, you know, sin is God's kryptonite. And like, if he gets near it, he freaks out, okay? It is that God obliterates sin. That is what is going on. And so when sinful people come into contact with a righteous and holy God, sinful people die. And what God is doing with the Ark of the Covenant, what God does with the, uh, the tabernacle and the tent, what God does ultimately with, the, with Solomon's temple in Jerusalem is that he makes places on planet earth where his presence could reside And as long as people did the ceremonial washings and followed everything according to the law, they could interact with the presence of God. This is why the high priest, when they would go and sacrifice once a year for the nation of Israel, they would do all of the the, um, ceremonial cleansings, and then they would go into the presence of God and make a sacrifice there. If they didn't do the cleansings properly, if there was a hidden sin in their life, when they approached the uh, holy of holies, they would instantaneously die. And so what they began to do over time is they would tie a rope around their leg with bells on it. And if you were standing out there, the high priest goes in and like, you don't hear bells for a while. You're like, we're going to need a new high priest. You know what I mean? That's kind of like how things went, right? Because God's presence is holy and our sin is awful, disgusting rebellion, There's no way that we can uh, uh, put God's holiness up too high. And there's no way that we could speak too lowly about our depravity. And what God is doing throughout this process is he's saying, look, there are terms by which my holiness can interact with who you are as a humanity. And what God does is he sends Jesus to the world who perfectly obeys the law. He's got all of the ceremonial cleansings right. Jesus becomes our high priest and he goes into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. And what Jesus does for us through his life and his death and his resurrection is he gives us an opportunity to be God's temple. It's a big deal. Here, I'm gonna read it for you in Ezekiel chapter 36. Turn in your Bibles, Ezekiel chapter 36 If you've got a Mosaic Bible, it's on 807. Man, this is fun. All right, Renault will be back next week. In case you're worried. All right, Ezekiel chapter 36, page 807. Starting in verse 26, what God does is he gives us a prophetic picture of what would happen under the new covenant because of Jesus. And what God's plan has been this whole time is that he would not live, the New Testament says that he would, his desire is that he would not live in temples built by human hands, but that he would live in us. Check it out, Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, the rebellious heart, the heart of depravity, the heart of, from your flesh and give you a heart that is soft toward me, a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This has been God's plan all along. 
Not that his presence would live in temples built by human hands, but that he would give his Holy Spirit to us and that he would live in us and that we would become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is what we are as the church. When we walk around, when we go everywhere we go throughout the week, we are going as his church, as his temple, so that people can encounter the presence of God through our lives. This is why we don't simply just go to church, but this is why we are the church, right? There's a Christian t-shirt that says it, so I know it's true, okay? Don't just go to church, be the church. Um, But this is temple theology. This is what God has been planning all of this time, is that not that he would sit in a box somewhere and do miracles, but that he would do a miracle in us so that he could reside in us. And this is what God is doing in the gospel. This is what God has done. This is why we can obey God's statutes because his Holy Spirit is in us. This is why that Paul says, those who set their minds on the spirit live according to the spirit and it leads us to life and peace. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in us and as Ezekiel prophesies, he moves us to follow his decrees and be careful to keep his statutes. And though the sinful flesh is hostile to God and cannot please God and cannot fulfill the law of God, you and I who have the Holy Spirit can please God every single day. Because when he looks at us, he doesn't see our failures, he doesn't see our flaws, he sees Jesus. (laughs) This is the good news of the gospel. This is what God has been planning to do all along. And it keeps getting better. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, The spirit is alive, it's life because of righteousness. What Paul is is giving us is this honest truth that we already know, right? Is that our bodies are gonna die. You're like, I thought Romans was good news. You know, like, but you already know it. A hundred years from now, none of us in this room will be breathing oxygen. We will all die. Our bodies will all die. And what Paul is saying is that because of what Jesus has done and because he has given us his Holy Spirit, Our spirit has been made alive even though our physical bodies will die. You remember when uh, Adam and Eve uh, first were being given and really it was just Adam being given the commandment. And God said, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That's right. You will surely die. And what God was saying is that there's there's really two aspects of this death. There was a spiritual death which separated humanity from God, which Jesus needed to overcome on the cross. But there was also a physical death, which means our body was going to be, uh, uh, you know, it would die because of the sin that we committed that brought death into the world and none of us would live forever. And what Paul is saying is that your body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Why? Because what happens when we put our faith in Jesus is that we are no longer in Adam, in the flesh, but we are in Christ, in the spirit. And our spirit is made alive. This is why Paul could say, hey, to be absent from the body that's dying is to be present with the Lord. How? Because your spirit remains alive. Because the spirit has given us life because of Christ's righteousness. It's so good. 
And then verse 11 is really the, the, the big conclusion, the big result of everything that God is doing in this temple uh, work that he's doing through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Verse 11, he says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Okay, so he's saying, if you know Jesus, if you're a Christ follower, you have the Holy Spirit because everyone who belongs to God has the Holy Spirit. And if the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if that happens, then this is what's gonna happen. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal and dying bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what God is saying, what Paul is saying in Romans is that what will happen with our bodies is though it is dying and it is mortal because of sin, that though we will die, our spirits will remain alive until the resurrection of the dead. You see, Jesus, Colossians says, was the firstborn from among the dead. So Jesus dies on the cross of Calvary. He's buried and dead. And on the third day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God raises Jesus to new life. And so Jesus is now born from the dead. And not only has Jesus now conquered sin on the cross, but through the resurrection, Jesus conquers death itself. And you and I, because the Holy Spirit lives in us when we put our faith in Jesus, it means that Jesus has not only conquered our sin problem, but Jesus has also conquered our death problem. That's good news. This is amazing. This is why this is in Paul's big crescendo. Because what is happening is he is unfolding for us all that the God of the universe has done in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who God has proclaimed to be Israel's Messiah and our salvation. He is our hope. He is our hope for forgiveness of sin and he is our hope for eternal life and the resurrection from the dead. Do you know what this means? This means that you and I have an incredible hope for the future, that we know that our bodies will die, but that that will not be the end of the story. Do you know, Christians, that if you believe in Jesus, you will not spend eternity with God in heaven? <laughs> Say, what? It's actually true. Because God is gonna do something even better. A lot of times I think our visions of heaven are like, you know, this really bright place with some clouds and some baby angels playing harps, you know? And we're just like, eh, <laughs> up there, chilling. And maybe some worship leader told us like, it's just gonna be like an eternal worship service. This is gonna be like this for eternity, man. And you're like, please no, right? <laughs> Not if you're leading, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I know, Christians can be jerks, me especially. Okay, so uh, these are like deep thoughts by Joel Kaufman. Okay, but like that is the vision of heaven that we often have. But did you know that that's actually not heaven at all? 
And not only is that not heaven at all, but heaven itself, where God the Father is and where Christ is seated on the throne with God and where every saint who is, and I mean like not Catholic saint, but like every Christian who has died and gone to heaven who is absent from the body and present with the Lord, that even is not the end of their story. You and I will be with Jesus for eternity, but it won't always be in a spiritual state in heaven as we know it today. Because Revelation tells us that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be a city at the center joining the two. The city will be called the new Jerusalem. And Jesus will be at the center of the city. And he will rule and he will reign. And we will honor and we will worship and we will glorify him forever. But we will do so with resurrected bodies The experience that we will have with God for eternity will be as much physical as it is spiritual, but without any of the sting of sin or death because Jesus has conquered sin on the cross and death in the resurrection. And that is good news. That is the gospel. That's Romans chapter eight. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for what you have done. It is unbelievable believably amazing. The the gospel, it is good news about what you have done in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And we get to be beneficiaries of all that you have done. It's so good. It's unfathomably good. And God, I thank you that you thought through every detail in advance that your plan has been unfolding since you said, let there be light. That your plan was created before the foundation of the world when Jesus was the lamb who was slain. He's always been our plan A. So Jesus, thank you for choosing to be our plan A, for coming and putting on human flesh and living and dying on the cross and then resurrecting from the dead so that by faith in you, we could have new life in the spirit, walking in the spirit, not in the flesh, as your temples, knowing that one day there will be a resurrection from the dead and we will be with you bodily for eternity. What an incredible truth. God, thank you for Romans. Thank you for everything that is contained in it. It is so good. And you are so good. And we need you more than we could ever imagine. God, you're good and we love you. We pray all of these things in the powerful and mighty name. The name that is above every other name, Jesus Christ. Amen.